this morning, we get to talk about what I think is, not I think, what I know to be my favorite subject in the Bible, and this is God's holiness. Um, the video is going to teach it a lot better than I can, but I want, as we sit in this morning's text and we talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, as we talk about God's holiness, I want you to have a sound biblical understanding of what holiness means as we're going to talk about it because we are going to watch in this morning's text God reacting to a culture through his holiness. And it creates a lot of confusion. It creates a lot of heartache and pain. Um, anyways, that's a terrible introduction. <laughs> Now you know why you're watching the video to pray for me so I can collect my thoughts. <clears throat> All right, turn your attention to the wall. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development. 
this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. We believe the Bible is one complete narrative, so we're making these... All right, crystal clear. That is the Bible Project, a ministry. If you were not familiar with it, I would highly recommend you logging on, checking out their videos. They have really good introductions to most of the books of the Bible, all different subject matters. They just do a fabulous job consolidating down complex ideas or complex books and just really giving solid outlines. Again, this morning, I told you that we are going to be talking about holiness, and this is the reason why it's my personal favorite subject. It's because this is what leads me to worship God. And it all flows out of Revelation 4 and 5 when you have John taken to the throne room of heaven, and he sees the Father on the throne, and he sees Jesus as a sacrificed lamb in all of his worthiness in that declaration. And out of these angels that God has created, we are told that there is a, there's a constant communication from his creation that he is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, God Almighty, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. So holiness, again, it's this, it is a word that helps define God in his entirety. He is unique in the sense of not one among many, but unique in the sense of singular as in the only one. So we are told in this video that the first time that the word holy shows up in the Bible is when Moses is there in that burning bush scene and God tells Moses that he is standing on holy ground. The next time it shows up in Exodus 15, and this is immediately after God has delivered the nation of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground, and this is recorded as the song of Moses. And in that song, Moses asks the question, who is like the Lord among the gods? We're going to talk about other gods today and what that means, but who is like the Lord among the gods? And I want to read this because it's where we get my sermon title this morning, which is a Glorious Holiness. And we'll get definitions for both of those. But uh, this is Exodus 15, verse 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Again, Moses is singing this with the nation of Israel as God has just demonstrated himself to have power over the gods of Egypt, over the nation of Egypt itself, 
over nature and over creation. I mean, he is just very visually over an extended period of time manifested himself to a culture. This is, this is Moses' response. Who is like you? Glorious in holiness. Fearful in praises. As we were just worshiping God, there's all these different lyrics that define him. And many of those words that define our God and his attributes, they hang on this idea of holiness, that he is unique, he is separate, he is completely pure, there's no spot, there's nothing false, there's nothing dark. All of this conveys the idea of holiness. And why I want this definition for you today is because we're going to watch God be mean again. We're going to watch people suffer. And even on the, on the external side, it's kind of like they're suffering in a humorous way, almost like God is mocking them and mocking their God in a sense. But at the end of this, it comes out with this question like, who can stand before this holy God? And that, that, those words come out of his kids because there's a fear there. There's a clear, holiness for me personally defines a very clear distinction between me and my creator. I, it's, it's easy to know that I am impure, that I am profane, that I am the opposite of this word holiness. But as we were watching this video too, one of the, these, the powerful idea that I want you to have in your mind is what God is seeking to do in his creation. He is the one who left his throne, his temple, wherever he has existed for all eternity. He left it to become like us for the whole purpose of making us pure. So when we talk about holiness from the idea of a ritual and a religious idea, if you have faith in Jesus Christ today, you are holy. He gives us the commandment in Leviticus 11. It's quoted in the New Testament. God says, you be holy because I am holy is what he says. And again, when you look at yourself in the mirror, when you sit in your own heart, your mind, your actions, your behaviors, you know that you are not clean before a very clean, pure being, right? And this is, this is the wonder of what our God has done by becoming like us and dying for our sins. It's that image of the coal touching us, that image of Jesus touching us. We're told, especially in the Jewish context and Old Testament context, if you go and you touch something, you as a holy, clean person in right relationship with God, you touch a dead person, that deadness has made you impure. And Jesus, again, did the exact opposite. He touched the leper. The leper, again, religiously, in Jesus' time, by him touching a leper, he became unclean ritually. But the astounding thing that happened is his purity flowed into that man, and those men, and the different scenes that we have, and those men became clean. And there was no way that anybody could say that Jesus was unclean ritually and before God by touching these lepers. You just watch him give himself constantly. This is what holiness to me communicates. This is why it's such a foundational idea for me personally as I worship God, as I seek him in his word, as I seek to serve him. It all, all so much of it revolves around this whole idea of God is holy. He has granted to me and given me through his grace and through his mercy, his holiness, and it causes me to yearn to be like him. Right now, in my mind, in my mouth, in my actions, and it causes me to groan and yearn for that day when I get to see him face to face. Because in that day, we're told that we will be like him, fully clean, without any impure thoughts, impure actions. It is a wonderful idea. However, just like in this metaphor with the sun, Holiness is a fearful thing because when you get outside of holiness and the will of holiness, there are consequences, which is where we are in 1 Samuel chapter 4. So make your way there. Actually, chapter 5 is where we are today. Let's pray as we jump into God's word. 
Father, that is our prayer this morning, is that you would manifest your holiness to us through your word, through your Holy Spirit, through your Son, through our brothers and sisters as we fellowship with one another. May you make your holiness known to us today, Lord, and may we worship you for what it is that you have given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Remember last week, these uh, chapters 4 through 7 is known as the Ark narrative in Samuel. Last week, we are dealing with, and we're going to deal with it today too, there's, religion has a whole bunch of really strange ideas. And this is why for me, you know, I want the word of God to convey to me what I'm supposed to do as I worship God, as I follow Jesus in my life. Last week, we watched the nation of Israel. They are treating this box, this ark, the Ark of the Covenants, that within it is the Ten Commandments. The lid has a separate name as the mercy seat. But they're treating it just as this religious artifact. It has is, it is lost its true definition in the image that it was to convey to the culture. And now the box has... It has its own holiness. It has its own power. The Jews were defeated by the Philistines in war, and their religion told them, go and get the box. And God didn't save you, but if you bring the box into battle with you, it is going to save you. And again, you can sit in, throughout the centuries or just even in your own religious experience, things that you have been taught by religious people, things that you have been taught by, this is what believers of Jesus do. And some of it's just, it's really strange. It has no foundation in the Bible, but somebody thought it was a good idea at some point in time. And it maybe was a good idea at some point in time. It had a meaning, it had an emphasis in regards to worshiping God. But for a lot of us, these things just lose their meaning today as we seek to engage God. We're going to see one of these weird religious traditions spring up in the pages of Samuel this morning. That it has nothing to do with anything that's real. People just thought it was a good idea, so that's what they did. And that's what happened with the ark. They thought it was a good idea. They bring it into battle. The ark has now been captured. The Jews have suffered over 30,000 men have died as a result and a consequence of their sin and of their actions. We sat in last week that this is a judgment of God against their idolatry and their culture. And then we're going to see that when we get into chapter 7, but that won't be today. So chapter 5, now this, this is sitting in... You know, in the midst of all this, the ark has been captured. We sat with Finhas's wife's declaration that the glory has departed from Israel. So we sit in this idea of glory. Its, its root definition is heavy, weighty. We're going to sit in this idea that God's hand is going to be heavy in this passage today. As we talk about God's holiness, God's holiness is a glorious thing. It is a heavy and weighty, not just idea, but reality in humanity and just in who God is. So 1 Samuel chapter 5. The Philistines, they took the ark of God and they brought it from Ebenezer, that's where the battle was, to Ashdod. So in Israel, this is the whole area of the Gaza Strip, north up towards Tel Aviv. This, this whole area is where the Philistines dominated. When the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Now this, most of you have probably been taught that this is a fish god, you know, a merman, lower bodies, a fishtail upper body looks like a man. Again, this, this is a religious tradition idea. The word fish in Hebrew is dag, D-A-G. So somebody, a commentator back when, sought to say, well, the etymology, the, the meaning behind this word must, as we're talking about Dagon, must mean that this is the fish god, the half man, half fish god of the Babylonians. <clears throat> Not true. So this is an idea, and again, if you read any commentary that's, you know, north of 10 years old, 
maybe 20 years old. Every single one of them repeats this idea. It's a religious idea. It sounds good. It seems like there's a connection there, but there's no connection there. When it comes to this God, again, he is a Babylonian God, but we have absolutely really little information about who he is other than he's the father of Baal in this, uh, in this mythology that's part of this area. For whatever reason, again, history does not tell us why Dagon became a God for the Philistines at all. Uh, Dagan, D-A-G-A-N in the Hebrew, as the, uh, it's the word for grain, so some people think he's associated with grain. But again, the, the, the mythologies that they found, the writings and those kinds of things, very little description of what this God is supposed to represent to the Philistines and even to the Babylonians. But here, they've got their own building they have their own God. They have a statue of their God. Uh, you know, again, it's the same thing with the ark. The majority of human beings don't go to a statue and say, that's my God. It's, it's known that it is an image to uh, convey the idea of who their God is. And again, these things take on all kinds of weirdnesses over time. And this is one of God's main instructions. I am your God. You will have no other gods before me. You will not create any images of me, anything in heaven, earth beneath. Again, these are very direct commands of God. And... The Philistines are sitting in this, again, this whole idea would be very impure. It would be a desecration. It would be an offense. Here people are worshiping the imaginations, ideas, rather than reality. Verse 3, when the people, when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. Now, this is where it just gets funny because you can kind of see God just having a little fun because there's his ark. And again, it's, it's just a box, but it's a box that God instructed to be made. It's a box that is to image him. It's a box that has a religious purpose. The box with the ark, uh, with, the, uh, with the, um, the tablets of the covenant on the inside and the mercy seat. These things God has commanded them and stated that they are holy. So therefore, this object is holy in its representation of him, of his glory, of his presence in the midst of Israel. And now an enemy has taken this Thing, this object and all that it represents and has set it before an idol. And what's God's opinion of the idol? Like, knocks it over. And again, so sitting in this, in, in the Philistines' religion, is their God just beat up the God of the Jews. And they have their religious object and they're presenting it before their gods, showing how powerful that they are and how powerful that their God is over the God of the Jews. And now, again, God is intentionally humiliating their God and humiliating them and their ideas. Fallen on his face before the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it at its place. Constant quip there is if you have to uh, move your God around to put him, put him in his place, you've got the wrong God. Verse 4, and when they rose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on, on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time, a direct judgment. The head of Dagon and both the palms of the hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So to this day is going to be at the time that this is written, which is later in time from this event. And look at the weird religion. The artifact that is to represent their God has clearly just been mocked, humiliated, and they come up with the religious tradition, well, because the heads and the hands 
were cut off and this object was destroyed on this threshold in this temple. Therefore, we're not going to walk on the threshold anymore. That was their religious mind. Rather than questioning the God and who they believed and why they believed in him. And again, I mean, this, this whole thing carries on. It's fascinating to me the things that we will hold on to because our parents taught us them, our culture has taught us them. This is what we learned about God and religion and, and how to have a relationship with God and what to do for God and not to do and all those, those things that we learn that when we're young, how hard they really are to break out of our minds and our hearts when they're off. And it has nothing to do with truth. And you'd think as we go through this that they'd be broken of it, but hard hearts, verse 6. But the hand of the Lord was heavy. Again, this idea, God's hand, God himself is glorious. This idea of, of his right hand, of power, his hand is heavy. It is weighty on the people of Ashdod. It says, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered themselves, uh, gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Now again, this this. This can be humorous, this can be gross, it can be, and there, there's some different ideas here. Nobody knows what the word tumors means. Um, some of the commentaries, a lot of people think that, think that this has the idea of hemorrhoids. It's dealing with a rising of the flesh as you sit in. They're going to make an image of their tumor as they send it back to Israel as an offering. That's a really weird thing to make is a, a, uh, an image of hemorrhoids. So that, that's one idea. But this is, this is kind of, in archaeology, what is found in this area from the Philistines are male phalluses. So more than likely, this is dealing with their private parts in some fashion. So God is, you know, they're, they're having pain in their backsides, their front sides in some fashion where they are sitting in this culturally where they are in agreement that this isn't some disease that is just blowing through, that this is a, an act of the God of the Jews because uh, that we have their ark. So God's hand is heavy against us in a very personal and intimate way that has captured the attention of the entire culture. I don't bring up any of this to be, to be crass or to you know, have potty talk or anything like that. But again, if you just think about your own body, if you are in pain in a physically intimate way, you have whatever's going on has your full attention, right? That is why God is doing what he is doing in his mercy, in his glory, in his holiness. He is not only making himself continually known to the Jews, he is making himself known to the Philistines. I am the God who created the heavens and the earth, and there shall be no other gods before me. He is getting their attention religiously. He is getting their attention physically. And this is the, excuse me, this is the hard stubbornness of humanity of coming up with all these other reasons why and the solutions to what are we going to do about it. And their solution is get the box out of my town and send it to somebody else's town. So they answered and said, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was after they carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction and he struck the men of the city both small and great and tumors broke out on them so there's a physical destruction going on and the same tumor issue in ashdod is now going on in gath therefore they sent the ark of god to ekron how do you think that the ekronites feel they're pretty upset so it was as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. 
So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. Again, all this, all this focus on, on side issues, not the real. It says, for there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Chapter 6, now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Seven months they've been dealing with this, as this is going from city to city. The Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. Get this away from us is their idea, and they're, they're looking for their own religious leaders to tell us how to properly um, handle a foreign god's religious object. So verse 3, so they said, if you send away the ark of the Lord God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Now, this isn't dealing with the biblical trespass offering. Again, this is, this is a Ford religion, and all they're trying to say is give this God stuff so that he will remove his heavy hand from us. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. So I, just, I just find this fascinating. Why, why would you worship even if there were a pantheon of gods, why would you worship a lesser god? Since there is a god, why would you worship a man? Why would you worship an idea? Why would you re worship a religion, a religious structure? You, this, is, this is, again, this gets back to the incredible idea of holiness. Because he came and gave to us his holiness, you have no restriction from entering into the holy presence of your God through his son. It's fascinating. It's what Hebrews is all about. Verse 4, they said, What is the trespass offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats. Or five golden mice. So there's, again, this idea of, this, of these tumors. Um, one of the standard teachings, possibilities, is that, is that it's the bubonic plague, which was spread through lice that was on rats in Europe during the Dark Ages. So this is looking for a connection, because we have no idea what's going on with the rats and the mice. We don't know what's going on with the tumors. All that we know in reality is that the heavy hand, the glorious hand of God is in opposition to the Philistines. So according to the number of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all you and on your lords. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land. And you shall give glory to the God of Israel. And perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Again, all this is fascinating. They know the history. They know what's gone on with the Jewish people. They know what the God of the Jews did to the Egyptians, and they're still refusing to turn. And this idea, again, the offering that they're giving... The giving glory to God in this, in this moment. You know, they're sitting in, again, their, their weird religious ideas. If you make an image of whatever you've got going on and you give it to the God, uh, this is going to help the God understand what your issue is so that he could deal with your issue. Doesn't that just sound weird? So weird. Continuing on in verse 6, we're midway through there. When he did these mighty things among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now, therefore, and again, this, this, this is actually a good test. Make a new cart, take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. 
Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold, which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go and watch. If it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done this, uh, has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it, is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. So they're sitting there in their culture and all these issues, the issues that have gone on. Is this because of the God of the Jews and because of the ark? Or is this just some random thing? And here's, here's the test so that we can know. So you're going to take two cows. So these are two female cows who have baby calves. And we're going to, uh, we need a new cart, so make sure it's not defiled in any fashion, that it's never carried anything else, because we don't want to make this God angry. So we're going to get a new cart, and we're going to get two cows that have calves. Now, female cows are not oxen, in the sense of these, these two, they want ones that have never had a yoke put on them before. So one, have you ever seen a horse that's never had a saddle on it to get a saddle for the first time? Is it a happy animal? No. You put a yoke on a cow for a first time, it is not going to be a happy animal. This is uh, to have two cows yoked together. This is a learned behavior to not fight against each other, to actually do what they're supposed to do under a yoke requires training. So to have two cows that have never had a yoke to be yoked together, for them to do anything in moving in a singular direction would be a miracle in and of itself. Now, also make sure that these cows have babies and go put the babies in the barn and the babies are gonna be screaming for moms, right? And what does a mom do, moms? Do you go take care of your screaming babes? That's why God makes babies cry so obnoxious because we have to do something about it. So if these cows just keep going towards Beth Shemesh and not return to their calves, we know, again, this, this would be another miracle. This is, this is not natural. So this is exactly what happens. So it says in verse 10 that the men did so. They took two milk, milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up the cow, calves at home, set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the golden rats and the images of their tumors. So weird. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh. And as they went along the highway, they're lowing, they're mooing as they go. They're mooing for their babies, but they're still heading in the opposite direction of their calves. They did not turn to the right or to the left. It says the Lord of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, which is just, what happened to the Philistines? We don't know. But they continue worshiping Dagon. They, don't, they, have, they have a radical, spiritual, physical encounter that can't be dismissed at, through any other means other than the God of the Jews did this. We have the evidence across the board in so many different ways, and we have zero information in regards to reflection, consideration, repentance, denying what is obviously weak, and receiving what is obviously powerful and strong. We don't have any testimony of that. And again, this, it's such a snapshot of the condition of our hearts, how truly stubborn and rebellious we can be in a variety of ways. But man, when, God's get, when God is getting your attention, slow down, stop moving, have a conversation. Ask the questions. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Is this from you or is this just random and by chance? When you, when you feel like God is doing something in your life, stop and have a conversation with him. So important. Verse 13, now the people of Beth Shemesh, the reaping and the wheat harvest in the valley, 
They lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, and they rejoiced to see it, I bet. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cow as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. So this is also weird religion. One, in, in sacrificing a, a cow to the Lord, it was supposed to be male and not female. So again, they're, they're doing their own thing, but they're doing what they feel is right in the moment. They're excited, they're rejoicing, their boxes come back. How have, they, how have they felt in these last seven months? Do they think that God is gone, that his glory is gone, that his holiness is gone, that his attention is gone, that it's only associated with the ark? You know, again, you got to sit in their emotions. So they're just doing stuff that they feel is right in the moment in light of whatever weirdness their religious culture has taught them. And remember, their weird religious culture is not the biblical religious behavior that God commanded them to do. It's taken on different nuances. They are in the midst of their own idol worship at this moment. So again, this scene, it's, it's weird all around in, its, in their behavior. Verse 17. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one from Ashdod, one from Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one from Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the Lord, large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of the Lord, which, the, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Verse 19, then he, being the almighty God, struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. What do you think about God? Told you, there, there's a lot of things in, in this narrative that just kind of make you sit back a little bit. Who would have looked in the box? Am I the only one? Don't you want to make sure that the Philistines returned your stuff? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying, I'm, I mean, I'm not a bright man. I'm not the sharpest crayon in the box, right? But I would have looked in the box. So I, I still remember first reading this, like, Why? Has God given to the Jews commandments concerning this ark? What's the commandment? Who gets, to, who gets to touch it? Nobody. High priest, once a year. How is it to be carried? Through these poles in the ring. For Again, for these men to have opened up the ark to see if the tablets of the covenant are still in it, that just means that they were totally ignorant or willfully rebellious in regards to what the word of God says. They're ignorant, meaning they don't know the command of God, or two, they're rebellious and the curiosity of are the tablets there or not overtook them. Thinking that God would be gracious and merciful, hey, we're just checking. So this is why I wanted you to have the idea of what God is in his holiness before we even began this morning. Because what happened is that they touched what was holy, they got too close, they crossed the line, and they lost their lives because of it. Now the number here is, is hard. Some translations, some manuscripts of the Old Testament only have 70 people died, and some of the manuscripts add this 50,000. So whether it was only 70 or it was 50,070, regardless, it's defined as a great slaughter. 
But what occurs, because they are the ones out of line with God, their definition about God is God is mean and God is harsh. The Philistines did the same thing. God's hand towards us is harsh. Well, what do you mean it's harsh? You're the one that took his stuff. And you're the one that's worshiping other gods. Why would his heart hand not be against you as, as an enemy? And here for the Jews, as they open this up in disobedience, and again, God is the one that has granted this object its holiness, not because the people created it and what, you know, man's stuff and man's image in regards to how God has defined this. He has granted to it his holiness. And because they crossed the line, they lost their lives because of it. And verse 20 says, The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand? Before this holy Lord God, and to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Then the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Benadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. Now, just history here, I mentioned last week. If the tabernacle was still in Shiloh and still a functioning object, why would they not send the ark to where the tabernacle is? So again, this gives us the idea that in these seven months that Shiloh has been destroyed. We read through Psalm 78 last week that gave us that definition, Jeremiah 2, God removed Shiloh from his presence. So the people, this is, this, is, this is the tragedy, I think, of not thinking. I don't, I don't know really how to define this other than here this community has a very clear interaction with their creator. And the community because of how God responded, they're in fear. And again, I don't know if this is in ignorance or if it's just in stubbornness, but that emotion of fear is, I want God to stay far away from me. Because what God did is very uncomfortable. It just cost people their lives. This is real relationships. This just isn't fantasy. Again, I mean, just sit in 70 people dying. That would be most of this room dying. If, you, if 70 people in this room drop dead, you would leave a tremendous amount of mourning behind you. And the culture who would be left behind would be mad at God. Why did God do that? Why did he allow it? And their, their lack... They're, they're in, instead of rationally thinking in regards to who God has made himself known to be, they're bogged down in their own ideas and their own religion and their own weirdnesses. And their solution is, I want God as far away from me as I feel comfortable, but close enough that I feel all right that I'm saved. Does that make sense? There's a whole bunch of things that God has said. There's a whole bunch of things that God has done that make us uncomfortable, that cause us to want to put that idea, to put that event at arm's length, as far away from us as we can get him and that idea, because I don't want to think and I don't want to take the time. And what are you really doing to your God? You're pushing him away. Again, like, this is, this is, my heart yearns for God's holiness in its functional reality in me. My heart yearns for that. I can wait. I'll wait. But my heart yearns for that day to be able to see my God face to face. Like, those, those thoughts feed me. They drive me. It's what gives me my passion. So again, any time that I find myself pushing God away because I'm uncomfortable, it always, it, it's, it's always a hard stop for me. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? 
Go talk to God, Blake. Get by yourself. Get with the word. Get into worship. Again, as we sit, as we sit in this narrative, there, this, the children of God don't know what to do with their God's actions and their God's behaviors. Rather than humbling themselves, repenting, turning to the word for right instruction in the moment, gathering together and having ongoing conversations about what's going on, why is it going on, what's the right solution according to the word of God. They sit in all their religious and keep living in. Does that make sense? Like God in his holiness is not... When we gather together as a church, when we worship God, worship team, come on up. It's not, oh, this is not my style. Oh, um, I don't like that one. Or, oh, when does the football season start? You know, again, we, we get into all these weird behaviors when it comes to gathering together as the body of Christ. And we are told as often as we gather together, we sit in the apostles' doctrine. We sit in communion, remembering the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And again, just sitting in it this morning, when you grab communion, thank God for his holiness today. That he sent his son to make you pure and clean. And again, the, the, the idea that conveys, the idea that ought to convey in your heart is you have the you have the bold, courageous permission to go to God's throne. Where is God's throne? We're defined. We're defined. It's, it's where he is, where he dwells. But that position, that idea, that imagery is getting back to the tabernacle and temple imagery. Nobody was invited into the temple other than the priests, into the holy holies, only the high priest. Don't you feel left out? Wouldn't you want to be the high priest so that, that you got to do that? I would have wanted to be. Don't you yearn to be close to God and to know him? May you know today that through faith in Jesus Christ and him touching you and coming to you, you're clean and all of your issues, and all of your circumstances, and all that you've got going on, you are good, you are clean, you are pure, you are loved, you are light. He treasures you. And all of the interaction we witnessed this morning is God seeking his treasure. That which he values is those he's created in his image. If you have any kind of idolatry, false religion, weirdness, man, may you seek God to break that stuff out of you. I seek him to break it out of me all the time. I'm a weird dude. And I try and keep my check, myself in check before the Lord all the time. Lord, is this me? Is this my reasoning and my oddity? Or are you really giving, getting me here? And are you really causing me to be separate and keeping me devoted to you in all areas of my life? Let's worship, church.